some of our most successful wins were actually sponsoring and going to conferences where we were their first ever sponsor. That was a really nice strategy for us because we didn't have to compete with other people and you can get lower rates and, and people were very thankful for sponsoring their conferences. I'm Pep Blair. Don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Spencer Fry founder of Podia, which enables creators to sell online. Over the years, Podia has become a multi-product company. They have a website builder, community platform, email marketing software, and more. All of those are very competitive categories. So how do they thrive when they face such heavy competition? That's what we break down in this episode. Let's get into it. When I started working on Podia, it was less of an opening in the market and more just trying to pursue something that I thought was going to be really interesting to work on for 10, 20 years, something like that. It kind of goes back to, I started this company called Carbon Made back in 2005, 2006, and we were the first online portfolio platform. Uh, and I loved working with consumers, especially like designers and creatives and that kind of thing. Um, I eventually sold that business probably in I always forget, but I think 2010, 2011. Um, and then I tried to start a B2B company. Um, it was okay, um, semi-successful, but I didn't really like doing it. So when I started working on Podia, I was like, I want to go back to working with consumers and especially working with like creative types. That's kind of what interested me about the idea uh, in this space. And then I saw people doing online course platforms, but they were very, very focused on online courses. And I think our innovation was that what if we were a checkout sales platform for all different types of digital products? So everything from courses, to digital downloads, to webinars, to eBooks, to everything. And that's where we started. For a few years, we were really the only platform that did those things. More than the opening, it was really just wanting to work on the problem. When you first launched, were you a single product company? We always wanted to be a platform. I have this theory that <laughs> I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but that everything eventually becomes a website builder, every product on the internet. I knew that eventually we would have a website, whether it was a landing page or sales pages or whatever, that we would need to build. So from the beginning, we set that as the starting point. So everyone who did create an account with us had a quote unquote website. It was mostly just like a home page and some sales pages. That was part of the beginning. Um, also, the ability to sell courses and digital downloads. Those were the kind of like the three core features and also check out. What was the most difficult part about getting to first million dollars in revenue? Oh man. <laughs> uh, I mean, so many difficult things. I think, you know, we, we talked right before we started recording about this idea of being persistent. So it probably took us seven months before we really saw any revenue at all. Um, you know, partially we were, we started as just a commission model where, you know, if you wanted to sell something, you know, we, I think we took 10% or something at the time. We realized that you couldn't really build a big business doing that. So we switched up our business model and went like SaaS. Um, so monthly recurring fee. And it was probably around month 11 or 12 uh, where we started getting our first SaaS monthly recurring customers. But it was a real slog. It probably took us two years before we even got to something like 10K MRR. It, it was a long, long process. Process, especially trying to convince a bunch of people that didn't know our platform, didn't know our name, um, but saw these other competitors out there with like bigger brands to come and try us. Um, that took a long time um, and a lot of. So, how many years did it take to get to the first million? Oh, so I, I, I funny because I've been working on this business now for a long time. I believe it was somewhere around 2019, so probably around three years before we got that got there. Um, and we've grown a ton since then. So probably the year before COVID was when we got to that size. And then as we talked to get a little bit before recording, COVID really kind of blew it up. 
Everything takes longer than you think. Podia took seven months to see any revenue at all, and then three years to hit the first million. While Spencer describes his three-year climb to one million dollars a long time, it's not an excessive time at all. Bear Metrics, the revenue analytics tool, reported that its customers take an average of two years to hit the coveted milestone. When I launched CXL's e-learning arm, the revenue was coming in from the start, but we were losing money each month. Uh, this was a bootstrap company, so losing money was not a sustainable approach, no VC money to fund it. I took massive action and changed a bunch of things to get the profitability. In revenue, I did a million the next year. To give you a really dramatic example, it took UiPath Heck Unicorn 10 years to go from zero to 1 million in revenue. Yes, 10 years. And then it went from 1 million to 600 million in the following five years. The key, as you'll hear repeated in this interview, is patience while building a product users want. There is no shortage of website builders. Teachable, I think, if it were already around when you guys launched and all these other course builders, are lesser known, WordPress plugins. So really, and if you think about it, the market was maybe not extremely saturated, but there was plenty of choice for the consumer. So what was your thinking on, and, and strategy on like, how do we get people to choose us and how do we stand out? So I think originally you can sell more than just courses on the platform. That was the first, I'd say, innovation. We really were the only platform that allowed you to sell courses, downloads, and then access to webinars through our API integration with Zoom and YouTube. So we were really the first platform where if, like you had multiple things to sell. You didn't have to go sign up for like Teachable and Gumroad or create a PayPal integration, that kind of thing. So we were the first platform to do that. And that's how we attracted probably our first um, million dollars in revenue was just advertising that fact. Because it was very difficult for people, especially back then, to like work with APIs and like have a sales page that had multiple checkouts. That was probably the first innovation. And then we started to really work on the website component of it. So a lot of our competitors had sales pages for their products, but the customization was light or they didn't allow you to build like an entire full website. So when we did that, it was really kind of innovative for our customers because they didn't need to have a website host, digital download host, an online course host. And so we just made their lives a lot easier and had everything all in one place. And so we were really the first platform to make that the biggest selling point. Over time, you also, though, killed some features. You used to have invoicing, yeah. scheduling. Tell me about this product choices, like what to build and what to kill. We, we build a lot of products. So I think we're really well known, I think, in the in the market as being like really fast innovators. We'll come up with an idea, we'll build it really quickly, we'll see if there's traction, and then if, if there is none, we'll kill it. Scheduling was one of the early features that we built. We thought that it would be beneficial for, to our customers who are also doing a lot of consulting. So typically a lot of people that sell digital products also do consulting. So we said, oh, you know, why not uh, reuse the checkout, let people buy an hour of your time, that kind of thing. But building scheduling software is really, 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 really difficult, um, especially you're working with like time zones, that kind of thing. And it's not that we weren't capable of doing it, but to do it well, we basically would have had to abandon everything else we were working on. We released a really early version, but then we got a million feature requests. Uh, you know, this isn't working, this is working, whatever. And then the adoption was under 10% of our entire user base. So we just decided to refocus on what was working, uh, which was the website builder, checkout, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, we cut it and we got a few like complaints or whatever here and there, but it was a great decision. And I don't think we'll ever bring it back. <laughs> You've written on your blog that a lot of your success came from sticking to an innovation at all costs strategy. 
I always uh, think long term. I I don't think about what can we build this year. I think about like, what can we build over the next ten years. I'm always constantly thinking about long term strategy, and I've really distilled that in every one of my team across all departments, even our marketing team. I, I say think about what can you accomplish over the next ten years, not like necessarily what can you accomplish over the next three months. And it really changes the way that they think about marketing because anyone can throw up ads for the month and see some success. But what is the real long-term strategy here that's going to get us into a dominant position in the market? But also on the product side too, I'm famous at my team for just like never looking at any of our competitors. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care how they build things. I just don't care at all. I always try to think about where are we wanting to lead our customers to? Um, because I think also one thing is that customers, they have great ideas for what they would want today. But I try to think about what do they not know that they need or will want in the next one or two years. And then I go and build that stuff. Priorities uh, come with resource allocation. So if you're innovation first, does that also mean that most of the headcount is in engineering? We're about 35 people right now and our dev team's about a third of the company. That being said, you know, we did raise some money early on and a lot of our investors like to talk about how um, even as a 10% or 12% dev team, we innovate and build products faster than dev teams that are, you know, over 150 people. Like we're very, very fast and we always hire developers who are very autonomous and can go work out a problem on their own. Uh, we also don't have any product managers, which is, or project managers. We have zero PMs on the team, um, which is a very calculated decision to, again, to get us to ship faster. So yeah, we don't actually have a huge engineering team, um, but there's super, super successful. Or they can uh, deliver really quick results. Um, out of 12 developers, we probably have about four or five projects ongoing at any time. Some of them will be longer, bigger bets, like you know, projects that might take six months to a year to build and then others will be like one to two weeks and then some will be in that kind of like two to three month period. So we do split it up, not all big projects. Did I hear correctly that you said you don't have product managers? Yeah, correct. We have no product managers, um, no product managers, no PMs. Um, I'm the head of product, so I come up with all the strategy. We also only have one designer. So I work really closely with our product designer um, to flesh out kind of what we're going to build, how we're going to build it, how we're going to design it, um, how it's going to fit into the product. And then we have weekly meetings with our CTO and one of our staff developers. So the four of us meet every week and we kind of go over the lay of the land, how the current projects are working, you know, who's going to be available to take on the next project, that kind of thing. That's very interesting. Once you landed around the 1 million revenue mark, COVID started, boost. Tell me what worked and also what did not work. The funny thing was that everything worked at the start of COVID. I think it was probably March, April of 2020. We had our biggest month ever. And it was probably three or four times bigger than our previous biggest month. And that just continued for, I don't know, probably 18 months. We really didn't have to do much. We basically, we did live demos a lot to just show people the product, answer questions, that kind of thing. So we were getting hundreds of people signing up every week for, for our live demos. We put out a lot of content. One of the things I'm really proud about the team for doing is that we launched our webinar feature probably in the first two weeks of the pandemic because a lot of things were moving on to Zoom. We were like, oh, we need to build this quickly. So that's when we built the API into with Zoom and YouTube so that people could sell on their store. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, nothing uh, nothing we could do would, would, would be bad. Every ad worked, all the content we wrote worked, all the outreach worked, all the affiliate marketing worked. That was probably about 18 months and then things began to slow down again. You also have an email product. So you guys are a, a multi-product company. Doesn't that diminish your focus or is it a cumulative additive? Why multi-product? It's very complimentary to everything else. Dating back to when I founded the company and I knew that 
you should be able to sell all different types of products on your website. I also knew that you needed a website and email marketing to really flesh out everything your business needed. And so really early on, we knew we wanted to build email as part of the product. This is, this is going back to that like long-term strategy. We, we had a really long bet that email would be what would take us to kind of the next phase of the business. We built like a beautiful web uh, email designer. We built like, tons of templates. We a million different piece, uh, customization options, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all filtering, all this stuff. And we did release it in July and it's been like wildly successful. Going back to this idea of building an all-in-one product, we want you to have your website with us. We want you to have your email with us and we want you to sell things with us. And then on the business side of things, since the really early days, we haven't taken a commission on anything our customers sell. So that's good and bad because when you're just taking a monthly price from your customers, there's no way to earn expansion revenue. And so from a business perspective, we knew that to really, really grow, you need this um, idea of expansion revenue and email marketing is kind of the best form of that because as people's audience lists grow, they pay you more money, which in turn is very good for your business. <laughs> Many companies are finding that a multi-product strategy helps them grow. Jack Altman, CEO of Lattice, the people management platform, talks about why that happens in his 2023 Saster talk. You're going to have more reasons to talk to customers. You're going to have more touch points with people. You're going to have an innovation story to tell. People who maybe weren't interested in your first product but are interested in your second product are going to come to you. So you're going to end up getting more leads. You're going to end up with better conversion rates once people are in your funnel. They're going to have more reasons to buy. It's going to seem cheaper to them. You might hit people who weren't as you know uh, desperately in need of your first product but need your second one. So you're going to get a lift to conversion. You're going to get a higher price uh, point per customer, which is the one that everybody expects, but uh, is not always what ends up happening. But you do, generally speaking, uh, get the ability to add uh, pricing. And then you're going to get better retention. Some amount of customers both are, you know, are going to want to stay with you longer because you've got more touch points in, in their system and in their workflows. Um, interestingly, for example, when we launched our engagement product in 2018, we had a humongous lift. We almost doubled our quarterly bookings rate uh, overnight when we launched it. But then when you pulled it open, like 20% of the lift was explained by the higher pricing. Almost all of it was explained by the better conversion rate uh, and more leads. Any downsides? Is it like lack of focus? Uh, what other costs or trade-offs there to become multi-product? I mean, yes. So, I mean, we're never going to be, uh, well, actually, I'll take that back. I was going to say, we're never going to be the very best in any category. Um, but going back to that long-term thinking, I actually think that that's not necessarily true. It's just going to take us a lot longer. It may take us another 10 years or 20 years to be the very best across all categories. But I think that's the immediate downside when you spread yourself thin, especially in the early days when your team is small, you may not be the very best online course platform, or you may not be the very best digital downloads platform or website builder or email marketing tool. Uh, eventually, though, I feel like the curve changes as you start to become better and better in all those categories. And then the cumulative sum of them and the ease of use of the product and being able to easily send your email after you've created your course and like automatically do this and that. And we can do all the sales tracking, which like no other tool can do because you're selling your stuff with us so we can track the sales that can populate the emails and so on and so on. So eventually, as the product becomes better and older and more robust, it actually does make it better for the customer. 
you've written on your blog that Podia is, is the first time where you had to come from behind to win yeah. and take on market leaders. I was really fortunate uh, when I started CarbonMade back in 2005, where we were the first Google search result for online portfolio and free online portfolio. And so you can imagine we really didn't have to do anything because Google was the best lead gen in the world and free and uh, a lot of it. So this company was a lot different. You would search for online course platform or whatever, digital download platform, we were nowhere to be seen. So it was tough, especially in those first couple of years. As I mentioned, we didn't have a lot of customers. So yeah, it was, it was really difficult. And I think there were some like dark <laughs> dark days where you're like, what am I doing here? We're never going to be successful. But sticking to our long-term strategy, I knew there would be eventually a light at the end of the tunnel. But yeah, it's always been very tough, but I think every single year that passes, we're better known. We keep innovating. A lot of our competitors have stalled out into like where they can go. That's actually another kind of interesting insight too, is that if you're just building an online course platform, there's a ceiling to the feature set that you can build. Whereas with us, we can always move to some other area of the product and continue to innovate. To, to a listener who is also building a tool that's coming from behind, challenging category leaders, how should they um, think about their go-to-market strategy or, or product strategy to win? Early days, we really heavily relied on content marketing as a way to just get our brand out there and get our voice out there. So we were producing just a ton of content. We were very early on YouTube. Right now, we probably have the largest YouTube subscriber count of any competitor in any of our spaces. So we spent a lot of time on video. We spent a lot of time on SEO. We really spent a lot of time on SEO. We built a lot of articles. That was all to get our brand out there because we knew we wouldn't be successful successful unless you'd had heard of heard about us why would you trust us like new player etc so especially in a market that ha is i'd say fairly crowded um especially these days i'm just getting our brand out there was number one ai has made creating content cheap and fast there's no advantage to be had here anymore as everyone can produce even more mediocre content than you to win at content marketing today you need high quality original insights some people have original thoughts all day long some individuals have vast personal experiences to pull insights from. Both of these are rare. But what's something most everyone can do? The simplest effective thing is original research, especially if it offers insights into questions your target audience has. Original research creates curiosity, makes for excellent social media bite-sized content, as each insight can be you know, turned into separate posts, and serves as a great backlink magnet. Article writers are always looking for credible sources to link to. The challenge with this, at least in B2B, has always been how to get respondents to my surveys. It's been difficult for most companies to produce more than one study per year. So we solved it at Winter. You can now do large sample size surveys with Winter, target by industry, job title, company size, and get results in 12 to 48 hours, all in a self-serve platform. You could ship an original research study per week. Getting data fast is no longer an obstacle. We went to some small early conferences. Some of our most successful wins were actually sponsoring and going to conferences that where we were their first ever sponsor. So that was a really nice strategy for us because um, we didn't have to compete with other people. <laughs> um, and you could get lower rates and, and people were very thankful for, for sponsoring their conferences, stuff like that. Um, again, it goes back to persistence. Like you are not going to be successful probably in, in the first few years of that business if you're going up against like a market leader. So you really have to kind of stick it out and try to find some innovative feature that's going to capture people's attention. Now, last year, you wrote on your blog that the first place market position is within our grasp and I want it badly. <laughs> Tell me more. 
I can feel it. There are definitely competitors in all areas of our product that are bigger than us and some a lot bigger, especially since launching email, like MailChimp is magnitudes larger than us. But I can feel it in the way that the, the product's coming together, what we're hearing from our customers, especially those who are switching from competitors. And we have a lot of people that switch from competitors. And just reading what they say, they've come to us and found it to be so much easier to use. Like they can do more, they're happier, like whatever. So I can feel it. And I think right now it's up to us how far we want to take it. I think that we can continue to out-innovate our competitors, even with a 12-person dev team. It's actually not that difficult. Even though we're probably tens of millions away from some of the larger competitors, like I can feel the tide shifting, especially as our all-in-one strategy becomes more and more successful. With email launching this past July, that was huge. Uh, for us, we signed up thousands and thousands of people to our email product. So yeah, it's all coming together. I guess you'd say like the strategy is working, but it, it's going to still be time. My goal is 2025, <laughs> end of 2025. You started with the courses being the main thing that you sell. And then you have the website building, email. How do you think the revenue share is going to shift as you progress towards future? Part of the strategy around launching email, as well as we're spending a lot of time on our website builder, is that we've found over the course of the past few years that not everyone is ready to sell something online from day one, right? So it takes a while, especially if you don't have much of an audience. So website is really key because I think that's where most people start. Like most people are like, I need to create a website. I need to tell my audience who I am, what I have to offer, et cetera. And then email is a very good second uh, phase for that person because, you know, as they start to gather email addresses and build their list, they can start to interact with those people. Phase three is really, okay, now that I have an audience and I have a website and I have my email marketing strategy, now what can I put together to sell it to that person? Typically, it starts with something small like a digital download or an ebook, something like that. And then it goes into a larger thing like an online course. Um, and I should mention, because we haven't talked about it all today, is that we also have a community platform as well. So people can create their own communities, which are actually quite a popular feature. You can have thousands of members talking to each other on your community as well. In terms of revenue distribution, people that are looking to sell are still our largest source of revenue. But with the email launch that just happened, it's starting to chip away at that quite a bit, actually. A lot of uh, product marketing folks would say that, you know, you like need to fit into your product needs to fit into a, you know, predefined box. So when mm -hmm. people come across your company, it's like, oh, it's a CRM or it's a whatever. Yeah. So you don't seem to be very concerned with uh, fitting into a, a category. Yeah. And it's, it has been a struggle at times to describe what we do on our website. It's very difficult because I think that we're attractive now to like millions of different types of people or tens of millions of different types of people across thousands of different categories of what they do. So yeah, it's been tough, like really to describe what we are because at the end of, the day, end of the day, we're like a website builder, we're an email platform, we're a checkout, we're all these different things. One of the strategies we've started to develop is building landing pages out for all different types of people. And so focus more around like, oh, you're a yoga instructor. Um, you know, what can we do for you as a yoga instructor? Um, that sort of thing, because yeah, it's difficult, especially if you're an all-in-one product to explain what is everything you do in a concise manner. If you're going to sit down and read a thousand words, I can explain it to you, um, but most people are going to read like 10. What would be um, three pieces of advice for a fellow B2B SaaS founder? One I've already mentioned is just this idea of persistence, um, sticking with the problem, especially during those days where you're just like, this isn't working anymore. As long as you just continue to give it time, I think that every SaaS business eventually grows, um, but you know it may not grow as quickly as you want it to. Obviously, after 
two, three years and you're still at zero customers, then maybe it's time to throw in the towel. But if you're kind of seeing at least some early traction in those first two years, um, then, you know, keep, keep with it. I'm also a big proponent of having a long-term focus on, on everything. I think a lot of times, especially early on when you're starting a business, you're just like, okay, what can I do today? Like to make the product better or make the company better. Um, and that'll serve you for a little while, but eventually you're just going to realize that you have no long-term strategy. You don't have somewhere that you're heading toward. And so you're going to be in a bad place in years two or three. And then you're going to be like, oh, I should have had a strategy here. Like I, I got nothing. <laughs> um, so yeah, thinking long-term is, uh, is really, really, really important. And then three is only work with good people. That is so important, especially as you start to grow the team. If you're not working with good people, then you're just your outcome um, and your chance of success is really going to be diminished. So I've been very fortunate about having like a really, really good team, but we've built that team up over seven years. So we hire very infrequently. We hire maybe one or two people a year um, and we're very, very picky as to who we, who we hire and who we work with. But like anyone who's ever done any of this knows that like we're Working with good people is really important, people that you can trust. So, what did Podia do to win? First, they focused on a core customer need, selling digital content, and they built the best customer experience they could for those customers. We were really the first platform where if, like, you had multiple things to sell. You didn't have to go sign up for like Teachable and Gumroad or create a PayPal integration or that kind of thing. So we were the first platform to do that. Second, they had long-term thinking. Even their marketers were told to think beyond current ad response and focus on how to build marketing that will endure for a decade. I always uh, think long-term. I, I don't think about what can we build this year? I think about like, what can we build over the next 10 years? And third, they had a multi-product strategy where each product drew revenue from their existing customers while drawing in new users. If you're just building an online course platform, there's a ceiling to the feature set that you can build. Whereas with us, we can always move to some other area of the product and continue to innovate. And that's how you win. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.